Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here. A Stand of Reason is the show, and I'm your host. And uh, we are well into December now, and uh, therefore we're well into our end-of-year financial strategy for STR. And uh, this is actually just about the only time all year long that I draw your attention to the fact that we are a listener and donor-supported enterprise. I mean, we sell product, and many of you buy product from us, but when you figure the overhead and the cost of product, uh, cost of goods and uh, the people that we have to pay to <laughs> make the product and distribute it and mail it out, it's pretty much of a push financially. It's just there not to help us as an organization, but to help you to provide that product for you. Now, all the rest of the things we do and all the payroll and all the overhead and uh, the rent and the electricity and the equipment and the traveling and uh, everything that makes our service to you, and that's the way I think of it, our service to you and, and our friendship with you, and I also think of it that way, possible uh, is a result of those who give um, generously, and I use that in the broadest sense, because some give more than others, but that doesn't mean those who give less are not giving generously for their circumstance. We are thrilled for every every gift that comes in to stand to reason, and it goes to good purpose. We work hard. But as I was trying to think about the best way to introduce this to you and challenge you to be generous to stand to reason here before the end of the month, before the 31st of December, so we finish out our year strong. I was trying to think of a, you know, kind of a way of characterizing what we do that uh, would kind of make sense the way we see our our efforts. And I, and I remembered uh, baseball legend Cal Ripken, who became famous because he showed up to work for every game two thousand six hundred and thirty two times in a row. Yeah, he 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 still holds the record. He's retired now for a long time. Nevertheless, he was great. Because he was consistent, he suited up every day, and he did his job. And that is, I think, a good characterization of Standard Reason's work ethic. That for three decades now, and this is our 30th year celebration, you know that, for three decades we've been showing up every day, we've been doing our job, and training ambassadors for Christ. And uh, uh, our style is we don't swing for the fences, We're not trying to hit homers. We just want to hit singles and doubles, singles and doubles. And over time, over 30 years, all of those base hits have added up to a massive impact uh, in the lives of people. And uh, so we've been showing up for 30 years. And for 30 years, our faithful partners have been showing up, too, consistently giving and hitting their singles and doubles, uh, keeping us in play and moving the game forward. And this last year, we've had tremendous motion forward. Um, our our partners have helped us accomplish uh, tremendous things. We trained over twelve thousand students and leaders at the Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. Unbelievable for us, especially it started out small and it has just blossomed and continues to grow. And we've launched eighty eight. Standard Reason Outposts in 31 states and four countries. We've added seven new STRU courses, uh, which have equipped over 10,000 believers online. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And of course, we don't charge for any of that. Well, we do charge for reality, but that's a little different circumstance. We're partnering for, with a church that has a venue and their expenses involved. But we don't, we don't charge much even for that. 
Um, <clears throat> we want to continue that momentum. We want to keep continue doing what we've been doing for 30 years in our 31st year, but we want to finish this year financially strong because everything we're planning for 2024 depends on what happens by December 31st. And that's why we're thrilled and we've been doing this for a number of years, <clears throat> but not at this level. Having a dedicated group of STR partners pledging a challenge amount, and uh, this is our 30th anniversary, and and what our donors, our, our partners have done collectively is put together a pledge of $300,000 this month to challenge you and our other friends to give generously to collectively equal or exceed that gift. It's not a matching gift. We're not going to leave any of that money on the table. They're going to give that, but they're saying, we're giving, so you give. That's their challenge. And I just want to know if you'll accept the challenge and send your best gift to Stand to Reason today, tomorrow, as soon as possible. I hope you do, because people like you have made over three decades uh, possible. And I'm going to say thanks uh, by sending you a signed copy of my sequel to Tactics, which is titled Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. And of course, we've been talking about that the last few weeks because it's, now it's out, um, and, uh, and I, want, I want you to have a copy uh, because it, I think this is going to really make a difference in your life. I'm thrilled about this book. It was a hard one to write. <clears throat> I put a lot of effort into it, and I think you're going to really benefit uh, from this book. So now through December 27, I'll send you a signed copy of Street Smarts with a gift of any size to stand to reason. It's very easy to do. Just go to str.org slash donate, str.org slash donate to make your gift. And uh, just be sure to click that box which says you'd like to receive the book, and we'll send it out right away. And we're going to keep showing up every day. I'm facing every obstacle. We're going to score our runs one base at a time. And uh, that's why I'm asking you to be generous with STR today. Go to our website, str.org slash donate uh, sometime this month, as soon as possible. Take care of that to be uh, to help us have a great ending and help us uh, keep hitting those singles and doubles together and move the kingdom forward one base at a time, finishing strong for this month. Okay, with that uh, resolved, uh, we're going to do... Excuse me, I'm I'm actually recording off schedule here, so this is open mic calls day. And if you would like to participate this in this sometime in the future, I have the calls already lined up because people have called in by going to our homepage and under podcasts and then live podcasts, there's a place where you can follow the prompts and then Speak into your microphone or computer or whatever you have and uh, and leave your question. Or you could just call us directly uh, for open mic calls, and that is 857-DIAL-STR, 857-D-I-A-L-L, pardon me, S-T-R, uh, 857-342-5787, and uh, leave your question. And so we're going to start with one from Benny who's being challenged by a Muslim about the Trinity. So let's hear what you have to say, Benny. Hey there, Greg. Uh, so I heard a Muslim ask recently, um, well, he was trying to debunk the Trinity, and he was saying 
if the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are 100% God, each of them are 100% God, um, then it, they should each have 100% of the attributes of God. So is Jesus independent of the Father or dependent on the Father? Because if he's independent, then um, that's two, two independent existences, which means two gods. And if he's dependent, then that means that he he can be God. They can be God because God is independent. Um, so I was just wondering how, you know, you'd answer that. Mm -hmm. If you can, then that would be wonderful. God bless. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Benny. This is an interesting uh, question because um, it trades on a, a refinement of our thinking about things. And uh, I've seen people get tripped up with 100% characterization in the past. Like, for example, the Chalcedonian formula uh, for the person of Christ is that he's 100% God and he's 100% man. And people kind of re reflexively say, in a reaction, as it were, wait a minute, that's 100% of one thing and 100% of another thing. That's 200%. That doesn't make sense. Well, of course it does. And it's just that people haven't understood how it makes sense. So I'm going to kind of give you some illustrations here, and then I'm going to hone in, Benny, on the particular challenge. Um, uh, Benny, you are 100% a human being. That means you have all of the qualities that are essential to being human. But I presume from your voice and your name, you're a male. You also have 100% of those qualities that, uh, that make up maleness. Maybe you're married, and if you are married, then you have 100% of the qualities of a husband. That is, you, you, you have been joined together in matrimony with another woman. So you can have, you have bunches of 100%, and these aren't in conflict with each other because we're talking about completely different things. All right. So Jesus could be 100% God and 100% man because he has all of what makes up God and all of what makes up man. And there's no conflict there. Now, of course, that doesn't prove the what's called the hypostatic union, the dual nature of Christ, but it does go to show as I'm giving these counterexamples that there's nothing contradictory or incoherent about being 100% of this or 100% of that and or both plus even other 100% of other things, all right? So uh, now the challenge has to do with the idea that Jesus is 100% God, but the Father is 100% God, but the Father and the Son are distinct. Now something must make them distinct. And um, one could say, well, they are just individualized <clears throat> by being different persons. I mean, that's all that's necessary to say to indicate their distinctiveness. So here's Amy Hall. We're both human beings. This is kind of a, a broad illustration. Uh, but we are distinct human beings. We have all the qualities of being human— but we are distinct and separate humans. She's not me, I'm not her. All right? And uh, so, so there's no conflict there either. The difference in th this particular case 
is that when we say that Jesus is 100% God and the Father is 100% God, we're, we're characterizing that statement in a different way than me saying that Amy Hall is 100% human and I'm 100% human because we're distinct individuals where there's only one God in our theological system. Okay, so I'm not campaigning right now for our system. I'm trying to show with a legitimate concern, I'm making a distinction, that a clarification that helps you to see that this isn't a problem for our system. Okay, because the, the word is, has it, it philosophically, or, or or just in terms of linguistic use, five different senses. So uh, you could say a person is flesh and bones. Okay, that's a parts and whole. That's a that's a composite. Is it, it, it is means this and that together. Okay, <clears throat> um, there's there's three other versions that I can't recall right now, or elements of is, or definitions, or way we use the word is, but the other one that's important here is the is of essential predication, all right? The is of essential predication. What that means is when when I say, Benny, that you are human, what I mean is not that you only have characteristics that are true of all human beings— but I am saying at least you have that. You are a human in that you have 100% of what is required for you to be a human being. But you actually have more than that, because you may have certain capacities or capabilities or skills that some other individual who is also 100% human— that 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 humanness is fully predicated of them does not have all right maybe you can play the piano and i can't all right so there are even though we are both now i'm i realize we're talking about separate individuals here but follow, follow me or just stay with me here even though we are separate um even though we have each have 100% of what it takes to be a human we still have things in addition to our humanness, which distinguishes us one from the other. Okay? So, in the case of God, here is our view. There is one God. There is one being who has the divine, the unique divine nature that is self-existent and has those qualities that only a perfect divine being can have. There's one of them in our system. That's true of Islam, okay? Within that one are three centers of consciousness, each of which participates or is—now, is, now here's where you run into problems— with the way words are characterized, but each of those who participates or um, have or are part of, although there's not parts here, are the one human, rather the one divine being. So everything that's true about the Father that makes him divine 
is not simply true about the Son that makes him divine, but they're the same thing. They're the identical thing that makes them divine that they share. And so here, this is the is of identity. And so let me put it this way. If if uh, someone were to say, Greg Kokel is the president of Stand to Reason, what that means is that everything is, that is true of Greg Kokel is identical to the person who is the president of Stand to Reason. In fact, we're not talking about two. We're talking about one. One is the other. Just like, Benny, you could be the father of, let's see, do I want to go that way? The person who is the father of your children is also identical to the person who is the husband of your wife. There's only one that is both. And in the same way, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not identical to each other. That, that is, everything that's true about one is true about the other, because on our view in the Confession, it says that it is the Son that proceeds from the Father. The Father doesn't proceed from the Father. The Son proceeds from the Father. There is a distinction between the Father and Son, in this case, a distinction of procession. There's a different quality the Son has, even though He shares the same nature, and I don't mean the same kind of nature, but the exact same identical nature. There's two, only one instance of that nature in the Godhead, not two or three. Um, and so this is why um, this solves the problem. The way you put it here, uh, each have 100% of the attributes of God. Um, well, that would be true. But there are more attributes the Son has that, that are, uh, there are attributes the Son has that are different than the Father. But when it comes to the divine attributes, the shared nature, they're the same. And that's not a contradiction. Now, whether, you know, Jesus' dependence on the Father, um, here's where we have to be careful how we use our terms. It is the Word that proceeds from the Father, and the Word became flesh in the person of Jesus. And when the Word became flesh in the person of Jesus, that human being named Jesus, who also had a divine nature, along with his human nature, was for that season of his life dependent on the Father. But that was in his incarnation. His divine nature wasn't dependent on the Father because his divine nature was the exact same nature as the Father. All right, so there, he's not independent in that sense. Look, at the Son can't be independent from the Father with regards to their natures, because they have the same nature, not the same kind of nature, but rather the exact same identical nature. There's just one, not two. Incidentally, that was the issue, the Council of Nicaea. <clears throat> did Jesus have a nature that was like God, or did he have the divine nature? That was the debate. Homoousis and homoousius in the kingdom, as one wag put it, was was divided on a diphthong. That is a combination of vowels 
differentiating the two words. They're in the Greek, okay? So uh, that's the distinction, and the answer is, no, he didn't have a similar nature as a separate being, but so that you have a God, the Father, and someone God-ish, the Son, rather the Son and the Father shared the exact same individual nature, the divine nature. Okay, once again, what I'm doing here is deflecting a challenge of incoherence regarding the Trinity as properly understood in Christian theology. I have not given evidence for the Trinity. That's different. What I've done is tried to show that this objection does not go through as a defeater of the Trinity, because the objection trades on a misunderstanding of uh, the nature of the word is, in this case. And um, when we say that Jesus is God and the Father is God, that is an is of essential predication. They have the the essential quality of divinity, which is only had by one being in the universe. And that's classic monotheism. And... uh, and so they share the same they share the same nature even though they are distinct uh hypostases or persons as is more commonly known so anyway it's a bit of a mind bender i did my best to uh throw the ball so you could catch it uh hopefully but thank you benny for that call let's see what else i got here all right. Well, this is kind of appropriate, given we're coming up uh, on Christmas, and yes, just saying those words causes me to shudder a little bit because, <laughs> oh, all the stress that I associate with the Christmas season. Um, I'm actually having surgery on my foot December 1st. That means i got to put the lights up before that, right after Thanksgiving. Because I can't get on a ladder. I can't get on anything. I can't even walk around for six weeks to eight weeks after that surgery. Anyway. All right. So let's hear from Ben Droney uh, on uh, his concern about my citation of Andrew Claven right around Christmas time. Hello, Greg. Uh, my name is Ben. I've spoken to you um, a few times, uh, both at reality conferences and um, on telephone calls. So uh, just had a question for you. I noticed that um, a few times you've quoted Andrew Clavin, um, who currently works for the Daily Wire. Um, I, I've also noticed that he has some interesting views on homosexuality, um, given that his son is homosexual, but then stands pretty strong against transgenderism. I wondered if we should be going by that example, or um, maybe if we need to think about um, <clears throat> you know, who we're quoting and who we're kind of following. Um, thanks. Okay, Ben, thank you for your question, and um, I think there are times when that uh, may be a legitimate consideration. And so when there is a concept in general that we want to advance and we have different people that have um, maybe stated the concept or advanced it or clarified it in a clever way, C.S. Lewis is a great example of doing that. Um, and, uh, and 
we want to try to to use a, a source like Lewis who is noble in all ways or as far as we could tell, all right? Other times you have people that are making a very unique contribution. The kind of thing that they offer is unique to them. There's no other source for it. Or maybe the contribution could be made, in a sense, by myself. So the insight that I refer to, which I'll get to in a moment, regarding Andrew that Andrew Claven offers, I mean, I could just give the insight, but it's such a profound insight or a singular insight that I think it's appropriate to cite the source and give credit where credit's due. I, I've done that lots in my books where there's just this clever way of putting it or this insight or whatever, and I just say I, I owe this insight to Jay Warner Wallace or Doug Guyvett or J.P. Moreland or something like that, okay? I could have just went without saying, I guess, but I just feel more comfortable giving them the credit. Um, now, in this case, apparently, Andrew Claven, who writes for the Daily Wire, um, has um, views about ho- homosexuality and gender that I would not agree with. I didn't know that. I don't even know who Andrew Claven was, except for that his name was the byline for this piece that I read and have read about the last show before Christmas, I think, for the last 20 years. And the reason I read it is because he makes such an interesting point as he's comparing two Christmas fictional characters, George Bailey and Ebenezer Scrooge. And uh, he is actually comparing and contrasting because you have certain things that are happening in each story that are very similar, but you have some contrasts too. And, And he makes this point to highlight something unique about Christmas and indeed unique about life and how we look at life. So here's George Bailey, who has given his life to noble causes and thinks he's a failure, where you have um, Ebenezer Scrooge, who thinks he's a success and hasn't given his life to anything noble. Yet each of them have a radical transformation in the way they view life, though nothing has changed in their circumstances. They have just gotten insight. Now, I think that's pretty good. It's the reason I read it pretty much every year. And um, in this particular case, I just don't think that whatever political views or uh, personal views he has about sexuality and maybe even writes about those things has any bearing on the legitimacy of this observation. And I, I I guess I don't get the sense in reading this piece that he wrote that I'm uh, somehow lending credibility to views that I don't agree with. I guess there are some occasions where that might be the case, and then I'd want to change my my source or maybe not even – maybe abandon that citation. I'll give you a good example, and it even makes me a little bit uncomfortable now just to mention this name – as, a, as an example here, but Ravi Zacharias uh, has made a tremendous contribution, um, objectively speaking. I mean, if you look at the books that he wrote and uh, the ways that his talks have influenced people, that's, that's there. Now, it turns out in his personal life, there were all kinds of problems. 
I mean, and that's probably an understate. He's been completely discredited as an individual. He's gone now. But uh, the things that were learned about him after he passed away in, what, 2019 or 2020 um, have, have, uh, have, have discredited him as an individual. Now, as I pointed out at the time, this takes nothing away from the substance of his writing and his teaching. Whatever arguments for God that he expressed are just as legitimate— uh, in themselves, regardless of what we now know about his private life. If they were good arguments then, there are good arguments now. But what we know now is somewhat poisoned the well, and so I'm not inclined to ever cite him about anything because I'm sure whatever I'm trying the point whatever point I'm trying to make, I can validate that uh, undergird it um with a citation from somebody else who's who finished well, let's put it that way. <clears throat> so now there's another, there's a, a an, an example on the other side, and these become judgment calls. I don't think Andrew Clavin is in that same category at all, not even close. And so this is why, in this instance, I don't have any difficulty reading Andrew Clavin, which I probably will read again. <laughs> in a couple of weeks, just before Christmas. Oh, no, it's not a couple of weeks, but a few weeks. It's coming on too fast. All right, so there you go, Ben. I appreciate your call. And uh, let's just keep rolling here. Let's take Daniel Hall. He's next on the list. Do you have that there, you bearded beast, you? All right, Kyle's got it. Daniel. Hey, Greg, love how you've been helping Christians for so many years. I've mm. certainly grown a lot because of your ministry. Thank you. Um, occasionally, I've heard Christians make the statement that as Christians, we give up our rights, that Christian love is self-sacrificial, meaning not seeking our own way, like it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and that we shouldn't claim our rights. I've heard some even speak against legal rights. It's kind of a pacifistic attitude. Other scripture I've heard cited to support this thinking is Philippians 2, 3 through 8. So this is my question. As a Christian, is it ever right to claim our rights, to stand up for our rights, to defend our rights, or are we just to turn the other cheek and suffer for Christ? Mm -hmm. This question affects us as individuals in our relationships and in civil society and also in regards to dealing with tyrannical government. Yes. Thanks again for helping bring clarity to our thinking on important issues. Well, thank you, Daniel, and I hope I can provide some of that here. Um, I, I'm I'm looking for your verse here. I'm just turning to it. Philippians 3, 3 through 8, I think you mentioned, which, um, is that what he mentioned? Does that sound right, Amy? Philippians 3, 3 through 8? Because this is where Paul is talking about his own pedigree and, I, and that he considers all as loss for gaining Christ. But there, I can see how that might be construed in the way that you mentioned, Daniel. Others have brought that verse up, apparently, for you. I'm what's odd is this is not Paul saying, I'm not going to assert my rights. It's Paul saying that none of his own pedigree matters when salvation comes through grace alone, through faith alone. That's it. I count all things to be lost. Go ahead, Amy. Oh, two. Okay, 
<laughs> I'm in the wrong chapter. <clears throat> yes, as I was saying, Philippians 2. So let me see what that says. Do nothing. All right. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, I know this passage really well. Surprises me a little bit that it has been invoked in this way. Do not merely, now the merely is in italics in the New American Standard, which means it's not in the original, but it's in, it, it's, it, the translators infer it from the original. It's implied there, and so they put it in for helping to make more sense of it. Not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And by the way, that word also is why they put merely in there. Because if it just read, do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, that would make sense. We have our own interests that we can look out for, but not just our interests. In fact, what we ought to do when when pressed is often <clears throat> put our interests below another person's interest, and then it gives uh, example with Jesus, have this attitude in your, uh, in you that was also in Christ Jesus, though he existed in the form of man, a God rather, he emptied himself, and this is the kenosis, all right? Now, I, I, I actually don't see this as this passage having any bearing on the question um, in uh, of not standing up for our rights. What Paul is saying is, let's humble ourselves with regards to the needs of other people and consider other people's needs more important than our own, okay? With humility of mind, regard at one another as more important than yourselves. Uh, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, because this is the attitude Jesus had. So, I, I actually— I, I know people saying you shouldn't be standing up for your rights, and I think there are times when we will not assert our right. We let that go and maybe make a sacrifice because there's a greater good in view. But I don't think that's standard, and certainly this passage doesn't teach that. And even the idea of turning the other cheek that you mentioned, Daniel, some people are going to be surprised to hear this. I know the verse, the, the reference comes from Matthew 5. <clears throat> Jesus says that to turn the other cheek. And uh, there's more detail there that's important, but just for your information, when Jesus was struck on the cheek himself, he did not turn the other cheek cheek so it could be struck too. Instead, he demanded an accounting of the person who struck him without good reason. Now, this was at his trial, and I, this is something that I kind of stumbled on. I think somebody pointed it out to me <clears throat> very late in my Christian life. I went 40 years without even knowing this or realizing this. Jesus was struck at his trial. And Jesus said, if I, if I did anything wrong, bear witness to the wrong. 
if I did not do wrong, then why did you strike me? Wow, that's kind of cheeky. <laughs> but it was appropriate. He didn't just turn the other cheek and say, okay, hit me again. What was done there was inappropriate under the circumstances. You could probably say in, in, with some legitimacy that his rights were being violated. The same thing happened to Paul, and he responded too, but not as deftly as Jesus did. But, uh, you know, he was struck, and then he said, God is going to strike you too, you whitewashed wall. And then somebody said, hey, you shouldn't be speaking bad of the uh, leader of the people or whatever of the of the chief priest. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not supposed to do that. So my apologies. It was already out there. But Jesus, of course, didn't have to apologize because all he did was hold someone to account for an action that was inappropriate in that circumstance. So I do believe we should be self-sacrificial. And Philippians 2 is a passage that does teach that in a certain context. It certainly isn't teaching that we should deny all our legal rights. It does suggest that there are circumstances then we might be justified in demanding something in a human relationship, and we just let it go. Maybe we're having a conversation with our spouse, okay? And our spouse just blows up at us in an inappropriate fashion. Now, we could say, hey, that wasn't fair. You're not treating me the way you ought to treat me. And it might be a completely accurate statement, but you might also realize that in Proverbs it says, he who opens wide his mouth comes to ruin. And uh, there's safety in just not responding sometimes. And, some, and so, therefore, when someone does that, you just stay silent instead of um, escalating the conflict. All right? So that would be a time you're being self-sacrificial. You're just, you know, you're just absorbing the mistreatment, and you just let it go. Um. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there are times it's the wise thing to do, it's the right thing to do. So there is a sense in which, obviously, Philippians 2, we are to be self-sacrificial, and Paul identifies the circumstances in which that uh, applies. Um, and, uh, and there are times we just we turn the other cheek figuratively— if you notice, by the way, when Jesus talks about that, he says, if if a person slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. Correct? I think that's the wording. Do you ever think about how do you slap somebody on their on the right side of their face? Well, normally when you slap somebody, you slap somebody with your prominent hand, right? And most people are right-handed. You don't slap a person on the left side of their face with your right hand unless you backhand them. Unless you backhand them. But a backhand swipe is, is, is an insult. It's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of hit, right? It's not just raw violence. It's you're, you're, in, you're insulting somebody. And so when, you, when somebody says, I got backhanded by that person— 
what they mean is, well, that person just insulted me. And I think this is what Jesus is referring to there. When you get insulted, you don't take revenge on them. You suffer the insult. You let it go. You, quote-unquote, turn the other cheek. But he is not preaching nonviolence there, nor that we should not hold people accountable in certain circumstances for wrong behavior, because he did the very same thing when he was struck on the cheek at his trial. So, hope that helps, Daniel. Moving along here, while we're getting a lot of them today, we got a stack of them, too, and I want to thank you guys for calling in, and my apologies that some of you have been waited for months to have your questions answered. Actually, we've had a couple cases, haven't we, Amy, where people have called in on the air to ask the question that's been sitting in our notes for a while. So that's okay, too, if you want to do that. I'm looking at... um, Hmm. Let's let's take Amy's call, a different Amy, Amy Bassler, and uh, she has a question for me. Hi, Greg. My name is Amy, and I first want to say how thankful I am for you and everyone at Stand to Reason. I've really been blessed by your ministry. Thanks, Amy. Um, anyways, I've had something come up recently with a friend who's a new believer. Uh, she told me that her and her husband were going to help move a friend in with his girlfriend, who are both unbelievers. And when I first heard that, it didn't um, quite sit right with me. So I didn't say anything to her, um, but just spent some time thinking about it and asking other friends um, who are more mature believers and whose opinions I really trust what they thought. And most of them said that they would help the friend move in because it was a way to show the love of Christ to them. And it could be an opportunity to discuss the gospel with them. Um, However, after I thought about it more, I felt that how could you um, sort of move someone into this situation of continuous sin and at the same time share the gospel with them seems um, sort of hypocritical. And um, if John, if Jesus in John 8 told the woman to go and sin no more, then I feel like it would not be a way to show the love of Christ to to them. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and how you would handle that specific situation. Hmm. Thanks so much. Thank you, Amy. And uh, I, I sure appreciate the call. I just realized probably a, no need to read the last names. <laughs> we have the last name, but I was trying to distinguish with our Amy. But in any event, uh, this is a little bit of a hard one for me because I definitely see your point, and I see the point of the friends who said they can assist. Now, I'm I'm not sure I I agree with your reason for being concerned. I have another reason. Um, obviously, this is a circumstance that entails sin. They're moving in together. I don't think that moving in together is the sin. The sin is the cohabitation or even the, the, the sexual behavior that is consistent with the cohabitation, which sexual behavior pretty much guarantee has already been going on. So it isn't like you're encouraging them into a new behavior that isn't already going on. They will be, they are, con- it isn't, 
starting a pattern of continuous sin had has been continuous sin and will continue on as they live in the same dwelling. I don't see it's hypocritical either. I do have a concern, but those aren't the concerns. A, hip, a hypocrite is a faker. That's the best way to think of them. The word hypocrite comes from the theater industry, uh, the you know Shakespearean, and back in those days, people sometimes people would play multiple parts, but they would wear different masks, a mask on a stick or whatever they put in front of their face, and so representing these different characters, and that was called a hypocrite. That's where the concept came from. So. I think in this case, the uh, the root concept is helpful for us understanding what the word actually means. It's not somebody who's inconsistent, uh, because we're all inconsistent. It's someone who's a faker, who says one thing but really does something entirely different. That they don't have, they don't really believe what they say they believe, but they're they're a big phony. Okay, sometimes it's difficult to tell, uh, you know, whether they're a phony or whether they're just inconsistent but nevertheless that's the that's the that's what a hypocrite is and i don't think for a believer to help a non-believer especially for the reasons that you said your friends would do that is an example of hypocrisy now i think there is an issue of <clears throat> abetting the sin by helping them go uh, move in together. Uh, I wouldn't, for example, if somebody wanted to get an abortion and they were intent on it and I couldn't talk them out to it, out of it, I wouldn't drive them to the clinic. In that case, I would feel like I was abetting that sin. Uh, and there's probably a number of circumstances like that that I just wouldn't feel comfortable. I think it would be wrong participating with them in as a as an actual participant in the sin. I guess I'm not sure if this falls into that category. I understand the point your friends are making. Well, this is an opportunity to show them love and a kind of, in some way, appropriate non-judgmental attitude. Because if you were to tell your friends, look at uh, we're I'm a Christian, and uh, I don't believe in people living together, and therefore I'm not going to help you out, I think that that would just come across, not in the spirit that you actually mean it, but it would come across as small-minded and petty and snooty and your nose in the air and whatever. And so that's not going to help. As judgmental, and we don't want to come across that way in a circumstance like this because we don't expect Christians—I'm sorry, we don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Um, non-Christians live like non-Christians. That's what they do, okay? And so we we don't put that requirement on them. Um, they're going to live together, so we're not going to make a big fuss about it with our nose in the air. There's probably all kinds of other things that they're doing that are wrong, too, that we wouldn't make a fuss about, but this is one of them that we would. Now, again, just declining the offer or opportunity— of helping them move in together, um, that 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 may be what what you feel is the right thing to do, and you could try to do it in a non-judgmental fashion. I don't know that it it actually ties you to the behavior, what happens in that place after they move in, 
but you may think it does. So I think it, each individual is going to have to decide for themselves. This is one of those areas that I think he this I think there is a right and wrong answer about this. It's not subjectivism, but I but I think it's hard to figure it out. And so people have to do the best that they can based on their own information, knowledge, and conscience before the Lord. So, Amy, if you are not comfortable with this, oh, I guess it wasn't you, it was your friends. Um, I certainly wouldn't judge the Christian friends for helping the non-Christian couple move in together, because uh, they have the best of intentions, and I think this is a hard call. So I'll just leave it at that. Amy. All right. We look at the clock. We got about seven more minutes. Let's see. Okay. Let's try John Phillips. He's next in line. Hello, Greg. Um, I've got a question for you. Um, I'm going through Logic in the Way of Jesus, and I'm going through the fallacies, and it's the circular reasoning. Now, I'm understanding this. It goes like this. Premise 1 says, the Bible says that God exists. Premise 2 says, the Bible should be believed because God wrote it, and he cannot lie. Premise 3, therefore God exists. And I understand that that is a circular reasoning response. But the other question I want to ask is... Um, I've heard I've heard it said um, the Bible tells me so, um, and I've used this before myself. And I was listening to Sh- uh, Shonda Fulbright. Uh, she mentioned that this was circular reasoning. So did Frank Turek. So I wanted to get your input on it to see um, how can I understand this fallacy and be able to really counteract it. Mm-hmm. Um, and be able to educate not only myself, but my class as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, uh, John. A couple of points that are important. Circular reasoning happens when you have a syllogism either expressed or implied. Now, a syllogism is a line of reasoning, okay? The very simple, a very simple example um, is um, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, all right? So uh, what you have is two, two, uh, two premises that, when taken together, entail a conclusion. They are a certain form, and uh, they, if this form is correct, which in that case it is, you can readily see that the conclusion follows. Okay? When, when the form is correct and the conclusion follows from the form, in the example I just gave, then that's called a valid argument. It's valid. doesn't mean it's true. Because you not only have to have the right form, and if you don't have the right form, then you have a formal fallacy, but you also have to have true premises. If the premises are not true, even if the—if it's not true that all men are mortal, for example, or if it's not true that Socrates is a man, 
um, then, then, the, then the conclusion is not sound. When you have the right form and true premises that don't have any ambiguities in the wording, that's called equivocation, then you have a reliable conclusion. And that conclusion, that syllogism or line of thinking is then called sound. Okay, so sound reasoning goes through uh, of necessity. But what we have here is God exists. Here's your syllogism, the way you gave it to God exists. God wrote the Bible. Therefore, God exists. Now, that doesn't even make sense to me. But in one sense, it is an example of circularity, and most circular reasoning is subtle. Let me just put it that way, okay? The problem with circular reasoning is when the evidence you have for the conclusion—oh, let me back up and put it this way. This would be easier—that your conclusion is evidence that you have for your con- for is is evidence you have for the conclusion. You have to assume the truth of the conclusion before you can work through your argument, okay? Um, John never lies, you say to somebody. How do you know John never lies? Because he told me so, and if he never lies, he's not going to tell a fib. John never lies. How do you know? Because he told me so. And if he doesn't lie, oh, notice right there, if he doesn't lie, then he's not going to tell a fib. But isn't that what you're trying to establish? How do you know he doesn't lie? You have to assume he doesn't lie for your kind of awkward argument to work. Okay? And uh, so so that's an example of circularity. All right? Um, there's a, 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 I'll give you a not-so—let me check my clock—a not-so obvious example. When, when, when a— when a materialist complains that somebody has invoked God as a causal agent in some kind of creative act, like the origin of the universe, or especially the origin of life. So we have a biological issue going on there, and they say, well, that's called God of the gaps. Now, why would they consider it a gap? Remember, the evidence that we're we're trying to present here is to show that an intelligent Creator is responsible for the result that we see here, maybe DNA double helix or the information there. And um, and so they say, no, that's the God of the gaps. Why would they say that? They say that because there is no naturalistic explanation. But there will be in the future, they presume. And you've stuck God into a gap there. Now, that is subtly circular. Because the thing at issue is whether or not naturalism is adequate to explain all the biological phenomena, or do we see things in those phenomena that give evidence for an intelligent designer? And when somebody dismisses the evidence for an intelligent designer saying, well, you're just filling in the gap, of course, we know we're not just filling in a gap. The gap is filled by by our solution because there's evidence for the solution. But they are pressing that because the gap, what the gap is, is no naturalistic, materialistic solution. But that's the whole thing that's at issue here. And so they say um, there's a gap because they haven't found a naturalistic answer. Now they're presuming that naturalism is true 
and it must be able eventually to fill the gap because it's true. They're assuming in order to push back on the rationale the uh, the the intelligent design person has offered that their view is true when that's the very thing that's at question. So there. I don't understand why the phrase, the Bible tells me so, is circular because it's just one statement. I'd have to see the whole line of reasoning. I could say, I believe it's true because the Bible tells me so. That would be true for me. I, I, I mean, I would think that's the case. I could say that. But that's not circular for me to do that. If I said, well, the Bible is true because it tells me so, and it tells me it's from God, and if it's from God, God won't lie, that's circular. <laughs> I got to presume my conclusion to make my case, something like that. It's also called begging the question, although I think there's a subtle difference between circular reasoning and begging the question. Anyway, John, I hope that helps you and your class. All right, that's it for this show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.